You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right, little survey for me this morning. How many of you here today are single? Okay, some of you are afraid to lift your hand up. I'm not going to do anything to you. Okay, now let's pair you off. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we're not that kind of church. How many of you guys here are married today? Just for my own knowledge. Okay, all right. How many of you today want to get married someday? Okay, mostly the singles group right here in the center. Now don't, don't raise your hand on this one, but how many of you, you here wish you were single? <laughs> Make sure you don't raise your hand on that one. So we're talking about marriage here today. We're talking about the difficulties of marriage, the blessings of marriage. We've talked about that last week. It's just so uh, amazing to me how God takes a man and a woman with all of their opposite uh, you know, qualities and characteristics and he puts them together in that thing called marriage and then he says, go to dinner together. You know, Make it work. Figure it out. But I want to talk to you today as we begin about the significance of the marriage ceremony. You see, I believe that the marriage ceremony, in so many respects, has lost its significance to us today. The symbolic layout of the marriage ceremony. And I've got a picture I wanted to show you guys of Rebecca and I's wedding. While I talk about the layout of a wedding ceremony, and I just snapped that out of our album this morning. That's why it's so uh, bad quality. But the layout, as you can notice, it, it starts with the seating. And, and the seating there is usually family members in the front. The privileged family members of both families there have the rows reserved for them in the front, right? Then you've got the layout of the altar in relation to the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. And so as you go from the back to the front, you're, you're progressing through friends to family to best friends, the ones that support you and are around you, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, but then you go beyond that, and at the very front of a wedding ceremony, you have the altar, don't you? And it is at that altar where the, or, or the canopy, some people use a canopy, but there are three people inside of that canopy or that altar, and they form a circle. And I like to call it a sacred circle. You have the bride, you have the groom, and you have the pastor who represents God. He represents God's presence in that marriage ceremony. Now, I call that circle the circle of oneness, or again, the sacred circle. And I believe that although the presence of God is everywhere all at once, He is especially blessing that circle of oneness, that circle that is sacred in the presence of God. That circle represents unity, the new unity that God is creating between a man and a wife. It represents the circle that the new family is going to come out of, is going to be brought into existence with all of its hopes, with all of its dreams, with all of its even mistakes, and yes, failures too. All that happens within that circle of oneness is taking place on a stage that has God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as its audience. No matter what mistakes might be made, no matter what failures might occur, any marriage and any family can be sure of one thing, the grace of God ready to be poured out upon them and to bless them the moment that they seek Him, the moment they ask Him. 
The moment that couple or that family will humble themselves, they will resist the devil and draw near to God. That family, that circle, that marriage, it will find that God's presence is near, that his sacred blessing is upon that circle of oneness, and that he desires to do good to the man and to the woman and to the children that they have created within that circle of oneness. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it means that you're going to have to be transformed into the image of Christ before God's changes can take place. But that circle, guys, never forget it. It is a sacred place and it is holy before the Lord. And once it is forged in the presence of God, it is not meant to ever be broken. God's greatest plan for your life is your holiness, not your happiness. And that's our theme this morning. Uh, we should have a slide for that. God's greatest plan for you, then, is not necessarily your happiness. A lot of people get this confused. They think that God exists like a pinata in the sky. You beat him a little bit, and candy comes out. You know, the, the good stuff is supposed to come out. You're supposed to get what you wanted. You're supposed to get the sweet stuff. But listen, that's not the way it works. God's greatest plan for your life is developing your character, your holiness. And his happiness is not his first concern. Let me explain that. Am I saying that you'll never have happiness? Well, no, of course not. No way. I know in my own marriage, I've had some of the happiest moments of my life with my wife, Rebecca. But remember that, t- that happiness is temporary. If we find ourselves walking in God's will, we'll have no greater joy. And we will often find that happiness is a result. But, but happiness is only temporary. Joy is eternal. Happiness is temporary. It's about this sacred circle which represents marriage that Paul is talking to us in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Read verses 10 and 11 with me. Now, to the married I command. Note that word now, to. Paul is here uh, signaling to us. He's answering another question. This is another question that came up from the church in Corinth. So now he's addressing it. It says, now, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife excuse me, is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So our first point for the message today is that for believers in a marriage relationship, there is no divorce. There's no D word. Okay? Don't even bring it up. Now, I want, us to, I want to remind us here, again, contextually, Paul is answering this series of questions from the Corinthian church. He's speaking specifically here about two believers in a marriage, although he will address other situations in a moment. And apparently the question seems to be posed here from the perspective of a woman who is desiring to divorce or separate from her husband. Why? In order to be more spiritual. Remember the issues that Paul was dealing with, with the Corinthian church. There were two of them. The first was dualism. Hey, my inner spirit, it's the real me. It's pure. It's untouchable. But then there's the outer me, the body, the shell. It's temporary. I do with it whatever I want to fulfill my needs. 
But that wasn't the only one. There was also asceticism taking place. This sort of holier-than-thou attitude, this spiritual asceticism that said, you know, I'm going to withhold my body from sexual relationships so that I can become as the angels now and, 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 not, and, and not defile myself with, with you know, any sort of a sexual relationship. So there were women in their marriages that were saying, look, I'm going to be like the angels now. I'm not going to give myself to my husband. And Paul had to deal with that. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Paul says, hey, man and woman alike, they've got equal rights. Your body's not your own. It belongs to your spouse. But here today, he's now addressing this, this perspective coming from a woman who's not wanting to be in a marriage. She's wanting to, to, to put that marriage away and, and be free, basically, to uh, be more spiritual. Well, Paul answers that question by giving them the Lord's command. The Lord's command. Verse 10, he says, Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So this command, in other words, is coming directly from Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm going to show you what he means in just a second. But before we do that, let's look at what it means when he says that a wife is not to depart from her husband, nor a husband to divorce his wife. That word depart, it equals separate. That's what it means. It, in the Greek language, it means to separate. The word divorce, there in verse 11, that's, that means to send away. There are different verbs in the original Greek, but listen, they have the same results, practically speaking. There's a broken marriage, basically, is what Paul is, is meaning by depart or send away or divorce. He means, hey, there's a broken marriage here. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, of which Paul and the Corinthian Christians lived, a husband or a wife could divorce their spouse, whether they accomplished that by obtaining a legal document or by simply kicking their spouse to the curb, it didn't matter. Divorce happened in that culture. Now, obviously, there was much less divorce on the, the part of women divorcing their husbands for practical reasons. If they were to do that, it was much harder for them to uh, make a living and to survive. And so it was more rare to see a woman divorcing, but there were cases of that. Now, if they wanted a divorce, they would do that. They would depart from the marriage relationship, plain and simple. It was different, though, in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, it was the man who alone was seen as having the rights to divorce. Now, during the time of Jesus Christ and Paul, there were basically two different schools of thought in the Jewish world. There was a conservative school of thought, ran by Rabbi Shammai, and there was a liberal school of thought, which was ran by Rabbi Hillel. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? we got conservatives and liberals all over the place, Right? Well, Rabbi Shammai, the conservative, he held that a man could only divorce his wife for a very serious transgression, such as adultery, perhaps. Now, on the other hand, Rabbi Hillel, he allowed for divorce for even the smallest things. Ladies, it wasn't a good time to be a Jew if you were a lady. You could be divorced for burning your husband's toast. Imagine that. Whoops, left it on, you know, put the dial on four instead of two this morning. And now I'm divorced because of that. You, you give him the stink eye, he could divorce you, you know? So it was not a good time for the ladies in those days in the Jewish community. But let's clear this up. Let's, let's take the Greco-Roman culture, let's take the Jewish culture, and let's find out where Christianity falls on these things. 
Let's take a look at what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. If you've got your Bible open, turn it to Mark chapter 10 this morning with me. Keep your place in 1 Corinthians, of course. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 2 through 12. And this is Jesus Christ's teaching, again, on the issue of divorce. The Pharisees came. Actually, I still hear some pages turning. I can wait. I can be patient. Don't worry. We want you to get there. Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 2. And, and, and now I, I'm going to read it. It says, The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is reclaiming marriage's original context, isn't he? He's saying it doesn't belong to the Greeks. It doesn't belong to the Romans. It doesn't belong to the Jews. It belongs to God. And he's the one that created marriage. And in the very beginning, he made them male and female. Men and women, what a beautiful picture of God's love for you. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. He sees you as equals. He created you as equals. Now he has established roles within the family unit and within his holy church. But that is all for the purposes of functioning in his plan. But God created them male and female, he says. In verse 7, Jesus continuing says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house... His disciples also asked him again about the matter. They wanted to clear up something here. That was a heavy teaching, they said. So they asked him about it. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Notice that Jesus doesn't differ. He's equating the same principles to the man and to the woman in that marriage relationship. People always want to talk about Christianity being male chauvinistic, totally not reading their Bibles, not studying the Word. We see that God very, very much sees men and women on equal footing within this marriage relationship. Now, this is why Paul says, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, if you want to flip back there, this is why he says, this is not my command, but this is coming directly from Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul makes it very clear, there is to be no divorce for believers in a marriage. But notice that he also says that even if there is a divorce or separation, even if the woman or the man were to depart from that marriage there, they were either to remain unmarried or to be reconciled to their spouse. That's in verse 11, isn't it? But notice how Paul applies everything that he says to the woman, also to the man. Again, I stress to you, Paul nor Jesus Christ 
nor Christianity has been designed to be a male chauvinistic religion. He applies it equally to the man just as much as he does to the woman. Paul is saying that even though a Christian couple may depart from one another for reasons other than biblical reasons, they're not to divorce one another. We all know that there, there are times like that where it can be necessary to be separate. What if a, a, a man is serving in the military and he goes overseas to fight a battle in Iraq or in Afghanistan? Of course, there's an there's a unwilling separation there. But, but, but that may have to happen. Sometimes it's for other reasons, isn't it? Reasons of abuse. Things of that nature. There, it may be necessary to do that. Paul says, hey, we, that, that can happen. But listen, that doesn't mean that you're to go and to divorce one another. The two may be living separated from one another, but they are not to be living as though they are single. In other words, there should be no other romantic or sexual relationships going on that could jeopardize the reconciliation of their marriage. So that's the issue of divorce in a marriage between two people that are believers. But let's look at a different scenario now. Paul continues on. He gives counsel for the believer with a non-believer in marriage. And he says the same thing. There's no divorce. Verses 12 through 16. Let's look at those. He says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So what we see here is Paul's apostolic counsel. Verses 10 and 11 were a direct command from our Lord Jesus Christ. But here in in verse 12 through 16, he's giving some apostolic counsel. Is is what Paul is saying, look at verse 12 with me again, notice that. Is Paul saying there that this is not really from the Lord? Listen, not at all. Again, he's saying this, this is something that he's talking about now that Jesus Christ never specifically addressed. Do his words still hold authority then? Or are we to take this as his mere opinion? Well, of course, his words hold apostolic authority. He's still, he is still speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. However, this is where the balance comes in. We would do well to understand and to remember Paul is answering some specific questions from the church believers there in Corinth. This is not meant to be a whole treatise on the subject of marriage in every single case that could come up within a marriage. We have to remember that. He he, he doesn't have the time to really cover. And that's not his intent in chapter 7, is to cover every single situation when it comes to marriages. Therefore, we need to realize that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not a complete theology of marriage, as I said. 
We need to take it together with what Jesus taught us, with what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 5, where he really lays out the theology of marriage. And then we also need to realize uh, other New Testament passages can speak into different situations. And that's how we get a full picture for what God's counsel is for marriages. But even then, guys, even then, listen to this, even then it seems that God intentionally does not answer some of the questions that come up in the Scriptures. Sometimes He leaves it a little bit vague. And I think that He does that on purpose because that's where your personal relationship with God has to come into play. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ has got to be real. And if it's not, you're not going to be able to figure things out. All of that said, just as Paul said before, the believer is not to be the one who initiates a divorce in the case of being married to an unbeliever. Let me repeat. According to verses 12 through 16, the believer should not initiate divorce if his or her spouse is willing to continue in marriage. Let's zero in on verse 14 for a moment here this morning. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What does Paul mean by this verse? Is Paul saying that the believer's presence in a marriage or a family unit actually counts as salvation for the unbelieving husband and children? Is that what he means? No, that's not what he means. That would be actually taking it a little bit too far. We know that Paul cannot mean that because of what he teaches us in Romans about salvation being through faith. And, and what he teaches about not even all the Jews being saved, even though they're the ones that gave us the holy law of God and our Messiah comes from them. But that doesn't make all of them saved. What Paul is talking about is more along the lines of remaining pure and untainted through fellow, or by fellowship with unbelievers. Remember in chapter 5, when Paul talked about the sexually immoral person and how we weren't even to eat with that one, with that person, how we were to break fellowship and not show support? Well, he was addressing the whole church when he said that. Here, we need to realize that Paul is talking to individual families. When it comes to the family, you might be in a situation where your spouse or your, one of your children is not a believer in the Lord. What are we to do? Cut off fellowship with them? That was kind of along the lines of what the Corinthian church was asking. And Paul makes it clear. He says, no. By your being in that marriage, by you being around those children, you're sanctified that. It's not that you are, your spiritual life is diminished or that you become spiritually unpure or unclean, but rather your presence actually brings sanctification to that circle of oneness that sacred circle that God has placed you in. And so because of that, Paul knows, hey, a spouse is going to need to be intimate with their marriage partner. He knows that there will be, they're going to be sharing meals. They're going to be hanging out with their unbelieving children. And he says, all of that is okay. He says, the presence of the believer sanctifies that circle of oneness, and it's all good. So enjoy your marriage. Enjoy your unbelieving children. You should eat, you should fellowship, you should love on them, you should reach out to them, and you should show them the truth by how you live your life for Jesus Christ. 
you might just win them to Jesus Christ by your life and conduct and relationship with the Lord. Now, Paul's teaching here connects us with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take a minute this morning to share it with you guys here for clarity. There are basically only two specific grounds under which God recognizes a divorce. The first is when there has been sexual immorality, and you can see it there on the screen. If you would like to jot down that scripture passage so that you can remember that, I would encourage you to do so. The second reason is when a believing spouse is abandoned or deserted by an unbelieving spouse. And that scripture is what we've just read and talked about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. And that being said, I want to counter or I want to, I want to say this. God does not recognize divorce on any other grounds. Even if the state does, then these two reasons right here. So if God doesn't recognize a divorce because there aren't biblical reasons, then Paul is saying that the individual is not free to remarry. They may live in a separated condition, but they can only be reconciled to their former spouse. Guys, I say that with hope and joy and a spirit of believing and trusting in the Lord for miracles because he can do miracles. He can do miracles and I have seen him do miracles. Don't despair. But we have to remember what Jesus tells us. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, he says to us, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. That's hard and heavy teaching, especially in today's Western culture. It's very difficult for some people to accept, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus taught it. It doesn't change the fact that this is God's will. It was so hard for the disciples to hear that they immediately reacted. In Matthew chapter 19, in verse 10, his disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Why did they say that? I'll tell you why they said that. Because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And it was heavy. Jesus was instructing them that in the case of married believers, only in cases of sexual immorality was there, you know, this, this, this opportunity or where, where God would recognize a divorce, not even an opportunity. It's to, be, it's to be the last thing after reconciliation is sought. His disciples understood that and they said, God, who's going to get married then? They understood. More Christians need to understand Jesus today before we enter into that circle of oneness, that sacred circle in the presence of a holy God. We need to understand his will concerning our marriage. There was a judge of the Common Pleas Court in Cleveland, Ohio. His name was Chief Justice Emeritus Samuel H. Silbert. He had presided over more than 3,000 divorce cases. And Judge Silbert said this. He said, marriages need more solemnity and dignity. They should take place in a church, if it's possible, 
Certainly, elopements and running into a city hall for a quick ceremony should be forbidden. I advocate a six-month cooling-off period before either marriage or divorce. No one should marry before 21. I think the most horrible thing parents can do to their children is to allow early, steady dating. Not scripture, just a judge, okay? Take it or leave it, however you would like. But I like that. A six-month cool-down before getting married. (laughs) And a six-month cool-down before going through with a divorce. That six-month period should be used to seek godly counsel. If you're getting married, you need to seek out biblical premarital counseling from your pastor. And if you are thinking of getting a divorce, you too need to seek out biblical marital counseling from your pastor. What's so sad is that many people don't have a pastor. Or if they do have a pastor, they don't view him as the one that they should go to. Let's wrap up our time this morning with the third and final point. Paul's counsel for everyone. Married, single, divorced, and remarried, whatever you... This is for everyone right here. He wants you to remain as you were when God called you. Check out verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That would be kind of hard anyways. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Praise the Lord. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you could be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. And likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Guys, as we wrap up the message this morning, this is our guiding principle for everyone. Okay, This is our guiding principle. Whether you're divorced and remarried to someone else, whether you're separated, whether you've never been married, All, Paul says, are to keep on following Jesus right now and living in peace. This guiding principle, it's connected back to verse 15. If you look at verse 15, Paul says that we're to seek peace. There in verse 15, he says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. What is he talking about here? The guiding principle is he's talking about that God's gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is God's call to every single one of you. And that gospel message will lead you in a path of seeking peace. It will lead you to peace. That means that we're to do our best to live peacefully with all men and women as much as it is up to us. We're to seek for peace. Paul wraps up his thoughts with this principle that we're to continue in our relationship with Jesus Christ in whatever state you're in. God calls you, first of all, to be in 
Christ. Note that. That calling, again, it's related to the gospel. God's call is for everyone in the world. That's how big our God is. He wants all to be saved. He calls all to be saved. He loves you. He loves you so much he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. He has a plan for you. And if you're like me, you've probably messed up his plan at some time in your life. Or you think you've messed it up. You've made mistakes. You've, you've failed. You've done things that weren't God's perfect will. But listen, that doesn't change God's call on your life. His call remains. And he calls you, secondly, within a social setting. Thirdly, God's call to the gospel on your life is more important than, one, that social setting that you're in, and two, it's more important than whether or not you make an immediate change to that social setting. And let me clarify, aside from setting aside sin, right? It's not God's will that you would live on in sin. So you depart from sin, you turn from sin, but your social setting is not what's most important in your life. It's your call to follow Jesus. So church, this is where we can square up with those who have made mistakes in the past. You may be here this morning. This may have been a very difficult message for you to listen to because of all of the things that are in your past, the things that that have happened in your life, whether to you or whether you were the perpetrator of those things. You may have made a mistake. You may have failed in a former marriage. You may be in a place now where it is impossible to go back and to be reconciled to a former spouse. Or you might be in the other boat. It might still be possible for you to be reconciled to your former spouse. Either way, listen, listen, listen. This is where you can grasp onto Paul's guiding principle and find the grace of God within it. Follow Christ in whatever state you are in. Confess your sins. Turn from them and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He can and will forgive you from your mistakes and from your failures. He can and will give you the opportunity to have a fresh start, a clean page, a new life. Because in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. I praise God for that. I pray that you would allow God's grace this morning to relieve your fears. And at the same time, that you would allow His grace to call you out into a deeper obedience and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you hear the Lord this morning? He's saying to you and to me that no matter what you do, follow me. No matter what you do right now, no matter what's happened in the past, you leave that in the past, you forget about it, you turn to me and you follow me. Now I'm not saying that there's not going to be, need to be reconciliation or confession or repentance or dealing with consequences, but I am saying that we need to hear the Lord's voice in our lives right now where we're at. Have you responded to his calling, his gospel? He's calling you. Let's pray.